Well, if you've been with us uh, for, gosh, this is the eighth week, so two months, then you know that we've been in a series called Don't Move the Lampstand. And, uh, and it, ends, it ends today. This is the, the, the lampstand will no longer move after today. And I've been reminding us, uh, it's funny, each week I've been reminding us that uh, it's weird, we, we're a data-driven society, and so we have really good information about why people come to church, why you're here. And each week I've just kind of reminded you the reason that you're here, according to um, Pew, the, the, the research firm, is that you want to feel close to God, or you know your spouse makes you, or you want your kids to learn how to be better human beings, or uh, there's just a lot, you, you, you like singing and it makes you feel good. There's a lot of really interesting reasons that people say that they, that's why they go to church. What's really funny, what's really interesting is that God doesn't say any of them. We saw the very first week that what God thinks is going on is God believes that there needs to be somebody out there who is spending all of their time, or at least most of it, shining the light on Jesus. Going back to Exodus from the very beginning, God had um, this tent of meeting. And in the tent of meeting, there was a menorah, a lampstand. And that lampstand's job was to illuminate the, the bread of the presence and the wine of the presence. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the bread. I am the wine. That, that's me. And then in Revelation, John says that we, the church, are a lampstand. Our job, our number one fundamental reason for existing is illuminating and praising and spreading the word and loving Jesus. And so we saw in the first uh, several weeks of this series, we saw what happens when that, when that happens. Uh, when, 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 the, when we're actually doing the right thing, when the church is shining the light, amazing stuff happens. People who need to be rescued from a sick and corrupt world come to be rescued. They believe in Jesus. They get baptized. They become excited about devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we associate with knowing the Bible and scripture. They, they, they start eating together and sharing their resources. They want to worship together. Life, they, they see, start to see themselves as a brand new family. And, none of, and all those things are wonderful. And if you go to most churches, you're going to see that they want that to happen, right? But the problem is with churches is what we tend to do is we put the cart before the horse. And we're like, what program is going to make it so that, you know, people love each other? How is it that we're going to encourage people to give generously? How is it that we're going to make people share resources? There's all these questions that churches ask, and then they answer them with programs and with sermon series and all. But, but really, those are all byproducts of just making sure that you don't move the lampstands. If the number one thing is focusing on Jesus, illuminating him, praising him, that stuff will come. The programs will come. The, the, the actions will happen. But that's what makes them happen. And then we saw in Acts 5 and 6 what happens when the lampstand gets moved. The church kind of loses it a little bit in, in, in Acts 5 and 6. The Jerusalem church, and as a result, there's fractions. There's factions, divisions. Uh, the leadership gets a little bit corrupt. People start not getting what they need. And none of those things are because they had a, a bad plan or the wrong programs. It's because they stopped that. And all of that begs the question, how do we make sure that we never move the lampstand? What mentality, what, what is it that we can do, believe, say, think, 
the habits, what, what is it that makes sure that a church never gets away from illuminating and praising and glorifying Jesus? Well, in today's text, I think John's going to tell us. So this is uh, from Revelation 1. This is uh, the beginning of John's letter to the seven churches of Asia. He writes, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and loosed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's a pretty good way to start a letter. Like when we write a letter, it's like, hey, you. I, we, we got some really solid letter writers here in this congregation. Send me emails, right? I love it. It's like, it's like Tom. You are a failure. Love so-and-so. Like, oh, that's pretty good. I like that. That makes sense. You're not wrong. Uh, And then with the texting, it gets even worse. It's like, where are you at? Like, oh, I'm at home. Why? Like, gosh, I I live here. It's crazy. But John, John, the ancient world, they were much better at letter writing. And and I want to just pull out a few things uh, from the beginning here. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, We know where most of these churches are, actually. Um, They've been excavated um, they're in what's modern day Turkey. Uh, and, and John, John's, so the, this ancient letter writing kind of works this way. First, you identify who you are and who your, who your audience is, right? So John to the seven churches that are in Asia, very common, very normal for a, uh, a, an ancient, um, letter. But then things get weird. Grace to you and peace from John. No, from him. Well, who else? Well, from the seven spirits who are before the throne. The first one's God the Father. The seven spirits, um, if you read on in, in Revelation, you start to realize that the way John conceives of the angelic world is that he thinks that every uh, Christian community or institution has kind of like a patron angel of sorts. Um, and that each one of those angels is powered by the Holy Spirit. Right, and so even though he's talking about seven different angels that are that are sort of supporting these churches, uh, really what he's getting at is that their spirits, they're spirit powered, and they're they're powered by the Holy Spirit. So from from the Father, from the angels whose whose power comes from the Spirit, and then who else? From Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that would be a kind of a frightening. So, hey, guess what? This message is from the triune God. You might feel a little bit like this picture. You guys, you guys, can you tell what this is? It's waiting outside the principal's office, right? Uh, that you know you've been naughty. Eric, you, you used to discipline kids, right? Eric was a you know, principal. Used to, he was the one that they would shake in their boots because he's a mean guy. And, uh, and they knew that. And so if they, you, you get called, they're like, hey, you're going to the principal. Oh, 
whole class goes. And then you go and you kind of sit there and you wait for judgment. Well, I think that's kind of like the, the sense that, that, that the churches are going to get when they say, like, whoa, 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 this isn't just John doing his thing. It's John, oh, yeah, and also. And as you think about the things that, that he said about God, who was and is and is to come, right? The beginning and the end. This is almighty creator God, the finisher of all things. It's the spirit that has the power to energize and create and destroy. It's Jesus. And then he, all the stuff he said about Jesus. I mean, it was like his name is in lights, right? He, Jesus, the, 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 the faithful witness, uh, the Greek for witness is martis. It's where we get the word martyr. It's because in the ancient world, they became so used to good witnesses to the faith getting killed that they actually began to associate those two words together. A martyr being a, a faithful witness is a person who gets executed for what they believe. And that's actually dropped into English. Right? So Jesus is the first, the first martyr, the faithful witness, the one who gets executed, but also the firstborn from the dead. He's the, the first. We're going to come with him. It's not just him. It's us too. And not only that, he's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Doesn't seem like it, but that's the case. Uh, and, and what this is doing, what, what's going on is that John is introducing us to uh, the fact that what he's doing is using apocalyptic rhetoric. Apocalyptic is a genre of writing in the ancient world. We have lots of different examples of it. And, and what, what apocalyptic literature does is it, it's, it's almost like, it's like you're going through your life, you're doing all the normal boring things that you do. You're worried about your, your petty concerns, whatever it is. And someone comes along and tells you how things really are. They rip the scales out of, off your eyes. They tear back the veil and they show, this is what's actually going on behind the scenes. This is what the world is really like. And man, it's totally different and it's way more intense than you thought it was. You're going around and you're concerned about whatever you're concerned about. Here's a message from the one who was and is and is to come. Here's a message from Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith, the first martyr, the firstborn of the dead. This is serious stuff. And that's the first thing in your note sheets. John's message comes from the triune God because it's deadly serious. you were reading this or you're receiving this, you're in, the, in one of those seven churches, you'd be like, whoa, this isn't, you know, the usual from John where he's like just loving us and telling us how great we are. And that's because if you read on, you go to Revelation 2 and 3, you start to realize that each of those seven churches, for the most part, has had something very badly go wrong. They're sitting outside the principal's office because they moved the lampstand and John knows it and so does God. And look at this. This is an uh, interesting little facet of the text. This is cool. Uh, to him who loves us and loosed us from our sins by his blood. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This, this, this kind of rolls, we just kind of read past it. But in the ancient world, if you were receiving this letter, you'd be like, whoa, what? Why is that? It's because in ancient world, uh, letter writing was very formulaic. And one of the first thing is, you, the first thing that the person who's writing does is they, they share some nice wishes. They kind of butter up the person that they're writing to. So in this case, what we should read is, you seven churches, you're so pretty. I love what you've done with the place. I hope everything goes really well for you. You may not know this, my father uh, is, is a wasp. 
a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, he comes from, uh, from Connecticut. He was born in Connecticut, my, my uncle and aunt as well. Uh, after World War II, my grandfather moved them out to California, but they never stopped being New Englanders. And so, of course, they went to Episcopal Church. They read all the right books. And the worst thing was they, um, they maintained one of the worst habits that any human being can have, and that is they loved Broadway musicals. And what's worse is that they, they forced me to listen to them too, growing up. And before I was old enough to know what was cool, I thought Cats was cool. I thought, I thought um, merrily we roll along. Seven brides for seven brothers. I mean, <laughs> and I got beat up in high school because I, everyone's like, what, are you serious? People dancing and singing songs? That's the dumbest thing ever. I'm like, what? no, this is, this is art. As a result, uh, growing up, I was forced to watch um, the 1967 uh, Hollywood production of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Does anyone know this? Robert Morris? Yeah. All, all the people who are like, you know, yeah, 80. There's only three of, it, of you in here who know Here's the deal. Thank God. If you don't know this, you're welcome. Like, you don't want to, it's not great. But it's supposed to be pretty funny, and it would be if you had a bad sense of humor. And the premise of the, the, the play and then the musical and the movie is that there's this guy, J. Pierpont Finch, and he wants to become, like, you know, a CEO. He wants to, like, succeed in business, and he finds a book that's called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And, it, and the, the comedy is that he has no skills whatsoever, but he ends up, like, becoming the chairman of the board. It's, it's a real belly shaker, I tell you what. And, uh, and as it's happening... What you notice is that the book gives him some very solid advice, and all of the advice basically amounts to flattery. It's like the key to getting anywhere in anything is just flattering people. So for an example, he, he's working in the mailroom, and, and, and he's working with a guy uh, who's not that great. And then someone is looking for a head of the mailroom, and they're like, oh, Finch, you know, you seem like a great guy. You should be the head of the mailroom. He's like, no, no, I'm Okay. But this guy right here, he's the best. And this guy's terrible. But he's like, he's, he's wonderful. He does this, 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 and that. And that guy gets the promotion. But the thing is, the book says, you don't want to be in the mailroom too long. If you're in the mailroom too long, then people will start to think of you as the mailroom guy. If you ever want to be a CEO, you can't be known as the mailroom guy. So what he does, he hands over, he flatters this other person. He's totally selfish, totally on his, but, but, but it looks to everyone, this Finch is the greatest employee we've ever had. And so he gets a promotion and he gets out of the mailroom. The point of the, uh, the movie is, and the musical is that um, human beings are very, very status obsessed. And so if you say nice things to them, you will do well. And this is true. Flattery does get you everywhere. Do you notice what John did, though? He skips right over the, uh, oh, you know, Church of Ephesus. Look how good you are. Instead, instead of that, what does he do? He's, he says, he says to, to, not to you, Church of Ephesus, not to you, Sardis, not to you, Laodicea, whatever it is. He says, to him. And he starts talking about how awesome Jesus is. If you want to see a contrast, you can do it and read any of Paul's letters. All of Paul's letters are like, I thank God for you. You're incredible. You're the best. Even when they're awful, he's like, 
even though you've got problems, you're amazing. Not John. John ignores them entirely. But why? Why? And that's the next thing you're no sheets. It's because John hasn't moved the lampstand. John is subtly kind of like slapping the church, being like, I, you know, you think that we're here to make you happy? Wrong. We're here to talk about how awesome Jesus is. To him, not to you. And so John hasn't moved the lampstand. He praises Jesus instead of the church. And that probably hurt their feelings a little bit. Especially given uh, the way, uh, really, if you were an ancient, if you, if you were the, one of those churches and you got this, this would be like, um, you'd let it go because they all knew John and they saw him as sort of, you know, their sort of spiritual father. But, but man, they would have been like, whoa, what's coming next is probably going to be bad. And then look at what John says. He's, he literally, this right here is a sum up of the entire book of Revelation. So first he's like, he's like, slaps them, praises Jesus, and then says this. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even the ones who put the nails through his wrists. And when this happens, every pagan is going to look and wail. Let it be. Why? Why is this? Why say this? You remember the, one of the very first viral videos, 2008, Corey Worthington? Does anyone remember this guy? He, he was front page news for, um, for like a week. Dude was, uh, he's an Australian. He was 16 years old. And uh, like a lot of the kids in our church, um, he decided to throw a rager at his house while his parents were gone. And uh, basically, his parents were gone on like a two-week holiday. They left him home alone. And so at the time, uh, Facebook was still on the up and up, but he had a MySpace account. And so he writes on MySpace. They didn't understand how powerful the internet was. This was 2008. So he just posts publicly on his MySpace, Hey, everybody, my parents are out of town. If you are out of town, if you want to come and have a rad party, just show up at my place tonight. Between 500 and 1,000 teenagers came. Uh, they had to call the cops because uh, these kids were uh, so wasted and out of control that they were um, lighting cars on fire and, uh, and smashing windows and blaring music. Apparently, the Australians were very tolerant because they didn't arrest him. Um, but, but he did get to go on TV. And so there was a, t- a television show that used to be called Current Affairs. And so an American uh, host interviewed him live on the air. And she's like, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And he goes, he looks like this. He's like, no, man, I'm a legend. Everyone says this is the best party we've ever had. Like, the only, my only question here is when are we going to do it again, right? And, and she's like, she's flabbergasted. She's like, how could anyone act like this? You know, she's like, don't you think you owe the people who lost their property an apology? Take off your sunglasses and apologize. He's like, I love my sunglasses and I'm not going to apologize. Peace out, lady. At the time, I was in my 20s and I had no responsibility and I thought this guy was awesome. And now I'm like, wow, what human garbage. (laughs) Why, what, who does that? 
Well, it, what was interesting during the interview is that he, he, he's like, what, my parents are gone. They don't even know this is happening. They're on like a cruise ship somewhere. Like, what are they, no one, by the time they get back, I'm going to have the place cleaned up. Like, what, I, I'm not worried about anything. I just had a great time. He, he's the kid, his parents, they're gone. And they're not coming back anytime soon. So he does whatever the heck he wants. Uh, the book of Revelation is written near the very end of the first century, probably 60 to 70 years after Jesus left. And at that point, um, there had been an entire generation of Christians who had died waiting for him to return. Uh, John is actually the last one left. All of the other disciples, all the apostles, they're all dead. They're gone. John's the very last one. He's an old man. He's been exiled. No one's saving him or helping him. He's off on his own. And he's looking around at all the churches, and all the churches are like, it's party time. Mom and dad aren't coming back anytime soon. We do what we want. Jesus, where's Jesus? Jesus left. Jesus is gone. And he's great. He gave us a spirit. We love him, all that stuff. But, but man, we got other important things to do right now. Jesus is gone. He's not coming back. Not anytime soon. So we should be, look, here's the deal. If someone's going to come and like try and kill me because of my faith in him, I'm going to say, I don't believe in this guy. Forget it. And honestly, you know what? Christianity has become boring. We've been doing the same thing for 30 years. Nothing's changed. I'm, and, and there's other people out there who have some more exciting ways of doing this. And we want to invite them in and have some fun. We want new teaching, new secrets, new excitement. We need better programs. We need all kinds of this, that, and the other thing. Because we got to have something to keep us interested. Mom and dad are gone. Time to party. The next slide is a um, 16th, 17th century, 16th century uh, French Jean Cousin. Um, it's uh, the Last Judgment. Kind of hard to see, but uh, but Cousin, um, he was pretty much the way that it worked is in the, in the in the Renaissance. Michelangelo's Last Judgment became like the all-time greatest, best depiction of the return of Jesus, and everyone thought it was amazing. Um, it might even be at the Sistine Chapel. Does anyone know where Last Judgment is? It's painted on a church. It is the Sistine Chapel? Okay, good. Yeah, so, and, and it's, a, it's a glorious painting. Well, so no one wanted to touch the subject. Uh, and so Jean Cousin was much more ambitious than he was talented. And so he tried to do this, tried to up one-up Michelangelo. And he came up with this painting. I actually like it a little more than, than Michelangelo's because it's so relentlessly dark. Michelangelo's is kind of has like this, there's a, there's a glory and a happiness and a joy to the return of Jesus. Cousin takes a much, uh, a much darker picture of it, probably inspired by this text. And you can see Jesus is coming on the clouds and everyone's terrified. There's wailing, gnashing of teeth. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is the guy on the white horse. Death and judgment have followed him. Look out! We were in the middle of having the best party that's ever been, and mom and dad showed up. Their headlights appear on the driveway. Young Corey Worthington starts peeing his pants. 
Similarly, the Lord Jesus is coming on the clouds. You notice that language. He is coming on the clouds. Ripping off the scales, looking behind the veil, seeing what's really going on. There's this massive spiritual war going on. And friends, Jesus is getting ready to show up. He's coming now. And when he does, what do you think it's going to be like for the ones who put a nail in his wrists? What do you think it's going to be like for all the people who get caught up in their petty concerns, their, their struggles for power, and who's the best, and who's the winner, and who's the loser, and the future for their kids, and making sure the business you know, is healthy and prosperous? All that stuff goes right out the window. Because the king came back. What John is saying is he's like, he's like, you don't know what time it is. You think, you're looking at, you're like, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's 70 years after Jesus left. That's what you think. And he's not, it's, and he's not coming back anytime soon. And so uh, I'm just, you know, I'm going to do what I do, make sure that I live the best life I can, my best life now. And I think... That we're getting ready at the t- what time it is? Is it's like almost sermon's almost over. We're gonna ladies are gonna go to the barn. I'm gonna have to take care of my kids. Um, they're gonna be you know whining and yelling, and I'm gonna make sure they get fed. I'm gonna try and get a nap in. It's Sunday afternoon, and some of you are like, "Oh, I know what time it is. It's it's time to find out who's gonna win." the Democratic nomination for president. That Bernie, he's on fire. Just won Nevada. Feel the burn, friends. And John says, no! It's apocalypse o'clock. The imminent return of the king is at hand. You think it's been 2,000 years and nothing's going to happen. You think it's been 70 years, nothing's going to happen. You think that it's time to make sure that your kids get into the right college. You think that it's time to, to make sure that your relationship is, is, is with your spouse is perfect. You think that it's time. No, it's apocalypse o'clock. It's the, t- the time has ticked down. And if you stop that mentality, if you give up that mentality, you are going to move the lampstand. You cannot avoid it because you will get caught up in all kinds of things other than making sure that you are ready when Jesus arrives. And that's the last thing in your note sheets. No matter how long it has been since Jesus left, it is always apocalypse o'clock. Apocalypse literally means uh, apocalypsis in Greek. It literally means revelation. It means a tearing back, a showing of what's really going on. And what's really going on is it doesn't matter when and how long it's been since Jesus gone, he's coming. Better not forget it. There's a lot of ways that this could impact us, right? And I, I've, I've thought, I've thought of a, a few, and I'd like to run through them with you. 
Um, because I, you know, I, well, yeah. So the apocalypse o'clock, number one, does Jesus' imminent arrival excite us or worry us? I think that to some extent, one of the ways that this text can be used is to like, you know, like, get your life together. Stop worrying about stuff. And then be like, you know that you've been bad. And if Jesus comes, he's going to read. I, I, I think that if, if our natural inclination is to worry that, um, that we're you know, naughty or whatever, we, we've, we are forgetting grace. You know, Jesus is coming, and, he, and he, we do want him to show up and, and see us ready, you know, not partying at Corey Worthington's house. Um, we want to, him to see us, you know, living, keep continuing to, to shine the light on him. But the ch- chances are, I mean, most of y'all are pretty decent. I would say, you know, as far as congregations go, you're not a bad one. Like if I, I would not probably, well, there's a few I'd like better. But for the most part, I would say you're top five, which is really good. Um, and, and so I, I, I don't want you to, to start looking around and being like, oh, no, Jesus is mad at me. I mean, probably he's not. Is there room for improvement? Probably. But I, I, I don't want this to turn into like, because it's not. It is a reminder, though, and it is a solution to the question. What must we do to make sure that thing doesn't move? Well, I'll tell you what. Don't ever forget Jesus is coming. And honestly, I think, you know, for a lot of us, I I think that we should be pumped. How great would it be to have someone come and just actually execute justice in this sick, messed up place we live in? That would be rad. So, Lord... As John says at the end of Revelation, amen, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Number two, does Jesus' imminent arrival mean we shouldn't plan for the future? Right, uh, so a lot of people, they, they take, uh, the, this happens in almost every generation where people get so obsessed about Jesus, he's coming tonight. And so they, they figure out which date he's going to show up on and they sell all their possessions and they just wait for him to come and, you know, rapture them up. And, and, and it never quite works out. Uh, no, I, I think that if, if we think about what keeping the lampstand in place involves, it is it involves making sure that if Jesus doesn't come, that the lampstand doesn't move in the next generation, right? It's to make sure that, you know, if he doesn't show up, well, then we got to make sure that our kids are, you know, con- you know pass- passing the torch and continuing to do what we do. There, there is an element of, like, this isn't an excuse to just, like, toss all responsibility out the window and just be like, I'm waiting, Lord. Because uh, every time that's been tried, it's, it's gone badly. And so I would say, actually, you know, future planning and being responsible and, 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 and future-oriented uh, for the world and for the church is actually a, a part of making sure the lampstand doesn't move. The problem becomes when we get so, you know, caught up in all of the stuff that ought to happen or will happen that, that we... And so we live in this kind of weird tension where we acknowledge that, yeah, it's been 2,000 years, and you know, based on past experience, it might be another 2,000, who knows? But we also live in the ripping off, John's ripping off the scales and saying, if you see what's really going on, the veil's torn back, Jesus is coming, friends. And we, we have to live with that tension. Number three, what habits will remind us that it's apocalypse o'clock? I've actually been thinking, like, I've been wondering what it would be to to constantly have that mindset. Because I'm, I'm no different than 
any of the rest of us. I mean, I get caught up in all the stuff that I get caught up in. And it's really hard. Uh, you know, you, you do Christianity for, you know, at the beginning, when you first become saved, right? You're like, oh, this is awesome. And you're like super pumped. And then you give yourself a decade, two decades, three decades, for some of you, like 15 decades, right? And you're like, and at a certain point, you're like, Phyllis, happy birthday. <laughs> uh, it, start, it starts to, the, the, the days and the years, they start to, to smear. And I, I, I think that there's value in, in developing a habit or developing some practices that um, j- just remind us, man, he's coming. And it might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, but he is coming. And we, we better be ready. I was thinking that every time I look at my phone, I'll silently say, he's coming. Because then I, I would probably like say that like 15,000 times a day. And I would be like, right in the, the zone. Number four, what behavior result when we know what time it really is? This is something I was, uh, I was thinking about. Um, uh, I was talking with Rick a couple of weeks back. We were having uh, breakfast, and, and he was like, Hey, what are some you know what are some practical examples of, of shining the light? And I, I think what it is is if you infuse every moment with a sense that Jesus could come back, the way that you operate will probably be different, right? Like instead of just like you know showing some terrible sign to the person who cut you off on the freeway, you'd be like, well, maybe they deserve it, but you you, you might have a different way of, of approaching it. And what Rick said, and I think he was really right, is he's like, hey, if you're in, if you're shining the light, then everything that you do, every act of love, even, doesn't have to be like, you know, you're sharing the gospel. You can just be loving someone who's unlovable. He's like, every bit of that is an example of the lampstand shining. That's Jesus being glorified because you're in that zone. That's where your mentality is, is I'm focused on the one who's, who is and is to come, and I know he's coming on the clouds, and so what everything I do is, is aimed at making sure that he's lifted up so that when he comes back, I'm good. And, and, I, and, and this is where I do want to push back against the whole, like, oh, I need to you know, straighten up and fly right because I'm so scared that Jesus is going to be mad at me. That is a, a completely wrong way of going about this. The, the right way is, hey, isn't it great Jesus is coming back? Let's be ready for that. It's going to be wonderful. And let's be the loving, self, selfless, kind-hearted people that he's called us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's be those people so when he shows up, it's going to be awesome. Number five, and last. Does CBC look like a church that knows what time it is? I don't know, maybe. It's hard for me to know. I wish I could be that guy who's like, this is a, I can tell you the truth about everything. There's a lot of them out there. Um, but I... I don't know. I, I mean, I, I definitely think that we are a, a place that, that you really sense um, the love of Christ. But it would be hard for me to say that, that I'm, you know, personally and, and that we communally are people who are very, very present to the possible reality of the return of the Lord. And, and, and I, do, I do think that there's an, there's an element of us being more cognizant of that and us being 
being present to the to the, the it being apocalypse apocalypse o'clock could change and shift the way that we uh, see what we're doing with you know children's ministry or women's ministry or men's ministry or everything ministry uh, that we would see that there's an urgency and 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 a and a, and a power to it that it's not just we're <laughs> phoning it in and and moving on to the next season but instead like this is this is fraught with eternal value. And at the same time, I think that we are a church that is absolutely in love with Jesus and, and a church that wants to see Jesus running the show. And I see that in the hearts of all the people here that I hang out with and talk to. I see that. I feel that. But I'd really, honestly, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, um, call me, email me, text me. Try not to do the John-style email. I prefer Paul emails. Tom, you're, I'm so thankful to God for you and how awesome you are and great. Here's some things you might want to work on. Did I mention that you're incredible and I love you? Love so-and-so. <laughs> but whatever we do, friends, um, let's never forget. It's apocalypse o'clock. Let's pray. Gracious God, we lift you on high. We confess that you are coming, that you're sending your son in spirit and power on the clouds. That we can expect him. That his arrival is imminent right around the corner, even if it takes another 2,000 years. God, may Coast be a, a church that lives expectant. Expecting your movement. Expecting your coming. Expecting the presence of your, of your spirit. And yes, expecting the return of our Lord who will bring justice and righteousness to a world deeply, deeply unjust and unrighteous. May we live joyfully in your grace, shining his light, and never, ever, ever moving the lampstand. In his name we pray, amen.